George Floyd, Elijah McClain, Brianna Taylor, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Richard Brooks, Amon Arbery. The list continues on. These are the black citizens that have died during officer-involved encounters. It has sparked controversy and civil unrest around the world. I would like to discuss why this subject is so significant to our society today. My guest today is activist, author, and public speaker, Evan Hempstead. He is the author of the book, Black and Blue, Pathways to a Positive Interaction Between African Americans and the Police. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Uh, my pleasure to be here. So my first question is, what inspired you to write your book? Well, when I was doing the research and had first decided to write this book, it was because there was such an abundance of officer-involved shootings of unarmed Black citizens. It seemed to be videotaped. There seemed to be videotapes all over, from all over the country, every part of the country that showed unarmed Black citizens being killed both male and female, being killed at the hands of law enforcement. That stopped me from writing the novel I was working on and started me addressing this subject. Did you have any experience with law enforcement that led you to write this book? Well, yes. As, as a Black man in America, I believe it's practically impossible to not have an experience with law enforcement. I, and sometimes I have to admit, it's your own stupid act that will draw the attention of law enforcement. I was dumb enough to be drinking and driving one night when two police officers pulled me over and it, it caused me to spill the beer I was drinking onto the floor. In my ignorance of proper procedure, I jumped out of my car so that they would not see or smell that beer spilled on the floor, which caused both officers to pull their weapons, their guns, and point them directly at my chest and start yet, they started yelling at me to freeze, don't take one more step. I literally believe I was one step away from being killed that night. And what was going through your head besides uh, being killed? What else was going through your head while, uh, while you're encountering this incident? Well, <laughs> fear. There was fear, of uh, a real fear of dying and being shot. And that along with the just shock of because I was not drunk. So there was the shock. I fully felt that shock of I might die right now. So I immediately stopped this just as they said. And when they instructed me to go back to my car and get back into my car, that is exactly what I did. And that is probably what saved my life that night. And has this experience been a long-lasting impression on your life? Oh, of course. It, it had to be. It occurred 
when I was in my 20s and here I am discussing it in vivid detail. It's a vivid memory at 58 years old. So, yes, it, it definitely made an impression as a life and death situation should. We should learn from life and death situations. Otherwise, we're doomed to repeat it. Without a law enforcement background, what would you say to someone who asks about your qualifications to write a book about police and minority citizen issues? Well, the qualifications, you do not have to experience being shot in order to discuss or talk about being shot. You, you do not need to experience something firsthand in order to make educated, educated assessments of something. I have been black for 58 years, my entire life, and I have encountered law enforcement in numerous times, as well as seeing numerous encounters with law enforcement many, many, many times. And as well as me doing the research that I did interviewing numerous police officers for my research in, in my book, I feel I am very well qualified to write that book that I wrote. What were some of the revelations that you discover, uh, if there were any, uh, while doing this research for your book? Well, probably... The most um, startling revelation, if I could call it that, was the revelation that the race of the police officer didn't seem to be a factor in the killing of unarmed minorities, killing and abuse of unarmed minorities. It happened with Black officers just as much, if not more, than with white, their white officers that were with them. Interviewing one of the white officers, he told me that whenever he was on patrol in the predominantly black area, uh, specifically, he was a officer from the black area of Philadelphia, one of the Philadelphia ghettos. And he said that whenever he was with a black officer, he noticed they were far more aggressive than he was. They were far more aggressive than any of his white counterparts. They wanted to prove that they were not like those black guys that they were calling the perpetrators and attempting to apprehend. With um, the black officers being so violent towards um, African-American communities, what happened to the empathy um, that they may have had but may have lost it? Well, I believe the empathy that they may have had was lost in the fact that <laughs> excuse me, they viewed themselves as different. They viewed themselves, they identified more as someone in blue than someone in their very own black skin. They viewed themselves as different than the perpetrators that they were attempting to apprehend. That right there, when you view yourself as so much different than someone, that gives you, in your mind, the right to judge, 
to prejudge and to act and treat them far differently than you would if you viewed them as one of your own group. So I want to talk about um, the George Floyd um, case that has sparked a massive protests around the world. It was the most publicly viewed uh, officer-involved incident. And of course, it inspired the massive protests around the United States and around the world. Why do you think that incident caused such an enormous response or outcry from so many parts of the world? Well, because of the egregious nature of it, it was such a public murder. And the fact that the officers seemed so non-caring as they killed someone in full view, not only of the public, but also with the awareness that they were being videoed. There was almost a proud look on their faces as they choked a man that was pleading for his life, consistently saying, I can't breathe, before he cried out for his already deceased mother and then passed out. Even after he passed out and members of the crowd were asking the officer to remove his knee from that man's neck and check his pulse because he was beginning to bleed from the mouth and the nose, that officer maintained his knee on that man's throat until medical people arrived. That was, it was, it was really, really public murder. So by someone who was entrusted, by a group of men who were entrusted to serve and protect us. Speaking of a group of men um, who are the law enforcement, um, besides um, the one who was, who had his knee on um, George Floyd's neck, there were a few other officers who were uh, assisting him. Uh, they were basically just standing there watching. Uh, why don't you think that they intervened? Well, there is somewhat of what they call a brotherhood amongst officers, whereas they identify more with each other than with the citizens that they are entrusted to serve and protect. They serve and protect each other first. They look out for each other first. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing, although it is something that needs to change when we're talking about the lives of citizens being in the balance. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the, the Elijah McClain case that resurfaced now. Um, before it was within the hands of the district attorney. Now it's uh, towards, um, it redirected towards um, uh, the Colorado State um, Attorney General Office, uh, who is uh, the Attorney General, is Phil Weiser. Um, do you think that's the proper reassignment? Well, I believe it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, for those who don't remember or don't know Elijah McClain, that is one that hit close to home because that happened right here 
in the city of Aurora with Aurora stopping a young black man of 23 years old, I believe he was 23, merely for the fact that he was wearing a ski mask. Now, that's not against the law. And while they may have been justified in questioning him, that's the furthest they should have gone. And they should have immediately just let that man return home as he was trying to do. Instead, when they stopped him, detained him, cuffed him, and then put him into a restraining hold that restricted his ability to breathe as he is well documented saying, and you can clearly hear him say, I can't breathe. Then they put him in the back of the police vehicle and gave, they first they gave him shots of a powerful sedative to calm him down. Now, they're not, to the best of my knowledge and to the best knowledge that was released on this incident, they're not medical professionals. They really should not have had the right to inject this man with the sedative, I believe it's called ketamine. I believe, I could be wrong, but that sedative is what put him into a medical state, intensive care, and he died within three days. Why do you think it's important to get a murder case of a black citizen, um, especially that resulted from the police brutality, uh, relocate that from the district attorney's office to somewhere else like the like the state attorney um, attorney general's office? Well, that's important because there is far too close of a relationship between the police officers, the district attorneys, and sometimes even the judges, because these people see each other on a regular basis. They pass each other in the hallway. They sometimes will see each other in the courthouse. They sometimes will see each other at the same restaurant while eating lunch or and many times will have a first name basis relationship. It's really hard to prosecute someone that you regularly have been involved with and a friendship and friendly relationship with. Really hard to prosecute that person and potentially put that person in prison for life. It, it hardly ever will happen. So that that. With that it's being said, I believe that the state and really my belief is the federal government, we should have a federal authority or a federal body look at these cases where unarmed citizens are killed. So I want to go back to the protests that are happening today. Um, there are many people that say that uh, these protesters are an excuse for looting and destroying property, uh, usually in their own neighborhood, uh, but even started calling Black Lives Matter as a terrorist or hate group. How would you reply to that? Well, there's more than one part to that question. To address the people who are looting and destroying property, first off, 
I must point out that there are bad actors and in, in people who will take advantage of every situation. And while I don't agree with the violent, the violence and the destruction of property, I would be a fool to not admit that the authorities and leaders in charge do not really notice until there is some type of violence, mayhem, or destruction. And this was witnessed way back since in the 1968 riots that occurred after Martin Luther King was killed. It was not until those riots happened that we started to see serious laws and protections put in place for Black citizens and civil rights bills introduced that would help Black citizens more. Now, as far as the other part of your question, Black Lives Matter being a um, hate group, that is, I've never heard of a hate group that only wants equality. They don't want retribution. They don't want revenge. They want equity. They want to be treated fairly. They are not advocating violence. All they're advocating is that when citizens, Black citizens, citizens of color are killed by people who are entrusted to serve and protect, Black Lives Matter is a group that is only trying to get a fair trial for the persons that are committing these murders. That's all they're asking for, fairness. And is it, would you say it's fairly true that most of the time when um, law enforcement um, do murder an unarmed black citizen, uh, that they get exonerated and it's up to a lot of people to protest to have their, their cases uh, be tried in court? Yes, yes, that is that is one of the reasons that Black Lives Matter even emerged to begin with as both a saying and a group. It emerged and evolved out of that fact that the black race in America is the only race that literally has to protest just for a trial to occur when they are killed many times on camera. There, there is no trial and they are uh, deemed as a justifiable homicide, even though cameras show that they were killed while running away or they were killed and, and choked, even though they were saying, I can't breathe and were still already handcuffed. There's no need to continue restraining an individual when they're already under control. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the Confederate monuments here. Um, many of the protests in southern states have resulted in the elimination of rebel flags and Confederate uh, leader statues. Um, many of them were being torn down by angry protesters. Uh, do you believe that um, these images 
these statues uh, are important to the issue that we're talking about right now? Oh, yes, they're really important because there are two prevailing viewpoints on this issue. And one of them is that these are symbols of history. The other viewpoint is that these are symbols of hatred. Now, my personal viewpoint is both of them are correct. These are, the, these are symbols of history. These things happen. Now, granted, it was a part of America's dark history, but it is history. Now, having said that, they are also symbols of hatred. When you have a Confederate flag, it is normally flown by people who are, in fact, militants, and they do, in fact, wish that Black people were slaves again, or, or Black people, they view Blacks as inferior, which is what that Civil War really was one of the main points of why it occurred. Now, while those symbols are historic, there's a place for history, and that place is in a history museum. We can see symbols of hatred in a history museum because that is part of our history. To see symbols of hatred embedded in state flags, which is what was in all of the Southern states or mo many of the Southern state flags, that rebel flag, that Confederate flag inside of the state flag, that is an in-your-face look at we still believe that the South and the Confederate states should have won. That is, that is the equivalent, in my opinion, of having the German swastika embedded in flags all over Germany and the world. That would be unheard of. By that same token, it should be unheard of that we have rebel flags symbols of slavery and the less than human treatment of black people and African-American people, that, that symbol should not be viewed and nor should those statues be viewed on public streets. Those statues or symbols of hatred should be where the history is seen and that is in a museum. Uh, speaking a little bit about history here, um, police brutality on the black citizen community is not new. Is that correct? That is correct. That is one of the things that many people, especially black men and men in the black community have always known that we are treated different. Not all the time, but more often than not, we are viewed a lot different. And I, as a black man, can attest to that. We are treated a lot different when encountering police. We are viewed, and there's an implicit bias in the way we're viewed, that we are guilty. And when two people are together, white and a black person, if something bad happens, it's the black person that is viewed as the guilty party. 
And that is the implicit bias that happens on a regular basis in not just law, law enforcement, but all throughout the American society. And uh, I'm glad that you mentioned implicit bias, uh, which leads me to my next question, which is how do we combat uh, implicit bias or how would law enforcement uh, combat implicit bias? Well, implicit bias, it, it is, it's a part of being human. You know, we have this, these biases in us and, and any type, any type of a bias is a prejudgment. Anytime we have a prejudgment, it is, we have already decided that this person is this, or this person already is that before we even get to know them. Now, one, they're, a few ways of combating that in police and police officers. One of the main ways is training. We need police officers better trained and trained on a regular basis. I believe police officers should be, should receive training. So, so much training that the implicit bias is even though it might be there, it will not affect their behavior. Their training will kick in and their training will override that implicit bias that is part of being human. Um, is there any other uh, solutions to this problem that we're having with uh, implicit bias uh, besides training uh, that we can use to help solve the problem? Oh, of course, because you're going to often hear that training, we, we train our officers very well. Another solution that I believe definitely needs to be looked at is psychological therapy and evaluations. When we have an armed authority figure, someone with the ability to kill us at their discretion, we definitely need to know that that person is mentally sound. We need to know that that person is not suffering some type of psychological disorder and specifically even PTSD. Police officers do get PTSD just like soldiers in combat. When they're in a hostile environment, like some of the nation's worst ghettos, they do get traumatized. And with that in mind, we want to know as citizens, we want to know that someone with the right to kill with a sidearm, anyone that they think is a threat, we want to know that that person is sound, that that person is mentally sound, and that they have been evaluated and deemed by a professional psychologist and psychiatrist as being able to make that judgment on who is dangerous and who deserves or is necessary for them to shoot. We need them, we need to know that they're, they're mentally stable. Which leads me to another question here. Do you believe that the police has been desensitized as far as human life um, goes? Yes, yes. And... Part of that, um, let's say, hardening 
of their character, desensitize, desensitive. Okay, I can't say that word. Desensitized. <laughs> <laughs> Part of them being desensitized is is necessary for them to properly do their job. I would not feel safe if the police walked up on someone that was murdered and instead of going into a protection mode, began throwing up or crying, <laughs> you know? So right. with that in mind, I we need them to have a certain level of desensitization. Desens I still can't say the word, so I'm not going <laughs> to <cry. laughs> But we still need them to have, <laughs> yes, that callousness that will allow them to see that and still let their training kick in on the proper way to handle that situation and resolve whatever issue is going on. Um, I want to actually go back to um, the Black Lives Matter organization. Um, some may argue that Black Lives Matter is an exclusive group. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, I did would disagree. There are numerous people, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, every single nationality, every single race that has joined the Black Lives Matter movement. Black Lives Matter is a statement and a group that merely wants to point out that our justice system appears to not recognize that Black Lives Matter. To say that Black Lives Matter is an exclusive group would be the equivalent of saying the American Cancer Society is an exclusive group. I'm sure that everyone would agree it would be ridiculous to go to a cancer rally, a cancer run or march, and then start yelling out, hey, wait a minute, there are other diseases too. What about diabetes? That kills people. High blood pressure kills people. Why are we only talking about cancer? All diseases matter. You know, that is the same type of ignorance that goes on when you hear people say, wait a minute, all lives matter. Of course we know all lives matter. We just seem to be addressing the fact that this problem, is recognized as a problem that needs to be addressed, that Black Lives Matter has to be pointed out. And I really look forward to a day when we don't have to have that type of organization. And um, so I want to ask about um, the cries that, that were that a lot of people have been having, which is um, some of the solutions to what we have right now would be to defund the police or demilitarize the police. Do you think that these are the ways we can solve uh, the problems that we have with police brutality? Well, while the, our police force does have a military style of um, military style weapons, as long as we are allowing regular American citizens to own AR 15s, 
I believe the police force should be allowed to contain and carry those same type of questions, those same type of weapons. It shouldn't be questioned what they have when American people have, American citizens should not have better firepower than the people that are entrusted to protect them. So, but having said that, I do believe that those cries of defund the police are somewhat ridiculous when we still need a well-qualified, well-equipped, and a well-trained police force. Now that training needs to include shoot, don't shoot scenarios on a regular basis. That training needs to include psychological exams and psychological evaluations on a regular basis. That requires money. So instead of defunding the police, I believe we need to reallocate those funds towards training and therapy, mandated training and mandated therapy and mandated evaluations on a regular basis. That doesn't mean every one, every five years. It means at least once a year. They need to have more training and therapy and evaluation so that we know that the person that has the ability to take our lives is sound mentally. Going back to the Eliza McLean case, um, it has been said that uh, law enforcement are not trained to handle uh, people who have uh, mental issues and they weren't trained to handle a scenario like that. Um, do you think that the police should stay out of the way of people who have mental issues and have a professional uh, encounter this incident? So then an uh, incident like Elijah McLean's would have been more properly handled instead of using excessive force. Yes, of course. There's definitely, there's been people, there have been people who have been saying that when 911 is called and we get law enforcement there, that we should have someone other than law enforcement for some of these calls. Law enforcement should be called for more serious crimes and we should have some other groups possibly containing psychological professionals to make some of these calls and go out and investigate some of these calls instead of people coming with weapons and with the ability to, and what usually results in apprehension and sometimes violent encounters. It would be better if we had that other option. There has been an argument that in law enforcement, there's only a few bad apples, and those are the ones that have to be held accountable uh, for their actions. And then, th and then the other controversy is is that there's no such thing as systemic racism. What do you say? What is your What are your comments on those two subjects there? Well, those are um, related subjects, but they and they are different because systemic racism is proven, if by no other reason than the fact that these shootings of unarmed Black citizens are occurring in every single part of the country. 
This is a policing system. Every single part of the country having the same problem, that by definition is systemic. As far as the way that the, you know, the, um, the, the, the way that these situations are handled, it definitely shows that we need to address it as a system. We need a systematic solution. We need a solution that is going to be nationwide just so just because the problem appears to be nationwide. This is happening everywhere from California all the way to Maine and down to Florida and Texas and every single state in between. These issues continue to happen so much that it's really someone turning a blind eye to say that it's not a systemic problem. Um, you wrote your book uh, five years ago. And of course, we also talked about that police brutality on the black American communities is not new. Why hasn't there been change? Well, it's hard to get someone to change a problem when the people won't even admit that there is a problem. Um, there is a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King where he says that equality, and, and I'm going to paraphrase because I was really not planning on using <laughs> this quote, but that's it comes a, to mind. That's but Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King said that power is not ever, and equality is not, is not ever given willfully by the most powerful party. It usually has to be taken. Now, this statement was given by a man that believed in peaceful protests ex exclusively, yet he still recognized that for equality to happen, it usually has to be taken because the powerful, the party in power is not just going to say, okay, let's make you equal now. And having said that, let's go back to the, the gist of your question, and that is why hasn't anything been done prior to this? It's not until all of the races come into play. So, which makes me proud to see every single race and nationality joining in on these protests, even in other parts of the world, because that's when the leaders are really taking notice that, okay, it's not just the black people complaining. It's not just them. They, 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 they notice. Now, they, now they're understanding that I, there's something that needs to be done. There's, I might not even be voted back into office. Uh, they, they notice that now we have repercussions. Now people are starting to not just ask, but demand equality. That's why there appears to be change now. Um, do I think that this change is going to stop the problem entirely? Of course not. This is a problem that has been 
at least 400 years in the making. It's not going to be resolved in an instant. It was slow coming. It was slow finding, finding and to even define that this is a problem. And it's going to be a process, a slow process, making all the changes necessary. How um, will we be able to start seeing each other as humans um, instead of um, uh, of other uh, anything other than humans? Well, one thing that that I believe should happen is we need to have events. We need to have community events where law enforcement officers, police officers need to interact under a friendly environment of perhaps a block party, perhaps a basketball game of high school teams against against law enforcement officers, which used to occur, I'm not sure if it still does, but probably with the pandemic, I'm sure it doesn't still occur, but we need to have events where law enforcement officers get to meet citizens in a non-stressful environment and interact with citizens in a non-stressful environment. That way we will see each other more as humans and officers will not see every other citizen that's not dressed in a blue uniform as a perp, as a perpetrator. You will see each other and the citizens will not look at every armed authority figure as the enemy. It's far better for us to interact and get to know each other than to have police officers and citizens meet on what is arguably the most stressful day of their life, which is really what is occurring when 911 is called. Well, uh, thank you. well, thank you, Kevin, for uh, answering questions here. Um, uh, before we conclude, uh, do you have any final thoughts that we have not mentioned during this interview that you would like to share? Well, sure. I'm not sure if we mentioned it or not, but I would like to say I love good cops. I have been on a ride along and I know and I've seen firsthand how brave some of these cops really are, how they will go into a situation, sometimes just a situation that's dangerous and will go into this situation knowing they could lose their life, and yet they still go. That's a type of bravery that most citizens don't have. Having said that, I still believe that everyone, not only police officers, but the citizens they are entrusted to serve and protect, everyone deserves that right to go home safely. It doesn't matter regardless, regardless of their race, age, gender, or in the case of law enforcement, even their occupation. Everyone deserves the right to go home safely at the end of the day. Well, thank you very much, Kevin, for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and opinions. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. And as I said earlier, um, 
if someone wants to see the 10 best practices of when pulled over by police, that's chapter five of my book. That is free. You don't do not have to buy the book. By the way, I will mention that all funds from the book go towards charities, sometimes even police charities. I have given to COPS, which is Coalition of Police Survivors, and I've given to the Denver Metro Urban League. So my book is not for personal gain. This book, Black and Blue Pathways to a Positive Interaction Between African Americans and the Police, this book is just to attempt. It's just my attempt to make things better. My website, blackandblue-book.com is where you will find the free chapter. Just click on the badge logo on the badge logo and you will get that free chapter. Thank you for having me, Adam. Hey, thank you, Kevin. And definitely do check out uh, Kevin's book and his website. And and if you like this episode, uh, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Um, my next episode, um, I'm going to be discussing um, labor unions with a special guest here. On a side note, please stay safe out there. We're still going through a pandemic, COVID-19. So wear a mask. If you go outside, wash your hands frequently and social distance. And thank you again, Kevin. And thank you, Adam. Okay. This is Adam Fung with The Why.